0: Good morning, and happy Easter, everybody. Great day to be in church, isn't it? <laughs> want to go ahead and invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head out the back, your teacher will meet you. Uh, Christopher has assured me he has prepared an awesome lesson for you. Came in with a big wad of paper, so I'm sure there's going to be great stuff to take home. Um, I love that song that we sang, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. He is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. What a great message. Let's let's pray together. Jesus, this is the day we, we as the church remember specifically your resurrection. Every Sunday we celebrate it, but this is the day we specifically focus on it. And, Lord, I am just overwhelmed at the thought that death could not hold you, that all the enemies that piled on for those Two days, three days in the ground, Lord, you shook them off and walked out of the grave. So, Lord, would you be with us now as we open the scriptures to hear more about your resurrection, the power, the strength, the audacity of it. Lord, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to your word. We pray in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Amen. So the uh, Easter message is the audacity of the resurrection. And what I mean by that is not how dare Jesus rise from the dead. What I want to look at this morning is kind of walk through uh, the, the way that the resurrection kind of flowed out from that. What was the impact of that resurrection? And, and you know usually at this time of year, uh, usually we get the news outlets coming up with the latest story to disprove Christianity, right? A couple of years ago, they found Jesus' burial box and it had his family name on it and stuff. And boy, this was going to undo Christianity. And yet here we stand, <laughs> worshiping a risen Savior, for some reason, this year we got spared. There was no big news story that was going to undo Christianity and prove it all false. Um, there, there was one satire site, though, that said, uh, they had a headline that said, Millions worldwide cling to faith that Jesus' resurrection was elaborate hoax. So it kind of turned it on its head. I thought that was pretty neat. But we got spared this year, so thank God for that. Why is it that every year the secular media, secular people, want to attack Christianity at, at Easter? and it's because I think the claim that a man died was laid in a stone tomb in the ground for three days and rose again to life is incredible. It's an extraordinary claim. And so this is something, if it's true, it has tremendous impact. So every year it seems like somebody is out to prove it's false. And um, so that's, that's what I mean by the audacity of the resurrection. This powerful historical event, it's a, it's a moment in time that all, all people, all the historians really believe that the first century church believed it. There are very few that would say something goofy like, well, it never happened, or it was based on myths and stories or something like that. That's been largely disproven. Um, they may not believe that Jesus actually rose, but they believe that his, his followers believed it. So what I want to look at this morning is kind of walk through some of the ways that that came out. What does that mean? How did the church uh, handle it? And so I want to look at um, the the resurrection in the face of opposing religious authorities, religious authorities that said they didn't believe it, the resurrection in the face of spiritual powers, these, these spiritual forces arrayed against the truth. And then finally I want to look at it in light of the prevailing culture, what happens when a culture doesn't believe it and what, hap- what goes on there? So Dan just read for us from, um, from Acts chapter 4, kind of hopped in the middle of the story. So let me sum up what happened before this. In chapter 2, Jesus has risen from the grave. He has ascended into heaven, and he's given his Holy Spirit to his followers. And they are so filled with the Spirit, so overwhelmed by the story, that they burst out into the streets of Jerusalem and begin to preach the resurrected Christ. And the people's response is, what are we going to do about this? Because Peter says, this Christ whom you crucified has been risen again. And so that day, 4,000 people believed. They put their hope in Jesus Christ and said, we, we can't believe this. This is an incredible story. In chapter 3, what's going on is, is they've gathered and they're beginning to talk about this story. And where they go with the story is they go into the temple. And the temple is the center of Jerusalem, not geographically, but really the heart, the center of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem really is the heart, the center of the nation. And so these disciples of Jesus who believe that he is risen go right to the center of the nation, and they begin to preach. So as they're walking into the temple courts, they see a man laying there crippled. And he's asking for alms. He's asking for money. And Peter turns and looks at him and says, I don't have anything to give you. I have no cash. But what I do have, I give you. Rise and walk and the man stands up. He, he hasn't stood up for years, and he stands up in the name of Christ. And so as they bro- go into the temple courts to begin to preach this message of this risen Christ, they have a man who people have just walked past, crippled, dancing, jumping, and shouting. And so they go into the temple courts and they begin to preach. Well, the religious authorities of the day were not real crazy about this. Um, largely, they thought they had solved their problem because they got this Jesus guy this this Galilean carpenter, this no-name preacher, they got him crucified. And that surely would have taken care of the problem, right? We've we've dispatched him. So now, all of a sudden, his followers are in the temple making noise, what's going on? So they send the uh, the temple police, essentially, the temple guards, to go arrest them. Um, Israel was under Roman rule. They didn't have a tremendous amount of legal leeway. But within the courts of the temple, they had a lot of authority. And so they send their guards in, and they say, arrest these men. So they're arrested, and the next morning, they're brought in before the religious authorities, the chief priests and the rulers, these, these high muckety mucks in, in society, and questioned, by whose name are you doing this? How did you heal this man? Because that's a bad thing to do, right? If somebody heals somebody, boy, you better check them out. That may be the wrong thing to do. It's incredible that they oppose something like that. But they bring them in and they say, why? And so Peter, filled with his Holy Spirit, tells them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and what happens after that is they kind of scold them. They tell them, don't do that again. And they send them on their way. Um, they beat them because you know, they have to maintain their authority. And Peter says, we are just so blessed to be beaten for Christ. And they send them on their way, thinking that's going to make them be quiet. You know what they didn't do in the midst of this? They didn't look at Peter and John and say, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You guys stole his body. If they had stolen his body, that would be just asking for trouble. So that never came up. That idea that they stole his body out of the tomb never comes up. And it would have been a really easy offense for the, the religious authorities to take, wouldn't it? You guys are preaching in Jesus' name. Well, we know for a fact you stole his body out of the tomb, so knock this, you know, knock this off. This is nonsense. But they don't. Instead, they figure, well, we killed the leader. Maybe we can you know, get these guys to calm down, and it'll all be okay. Well, the resurrection is not going to go away. It doesn't just disappear because the, religious, the opposing religious authorities don't like it. It doesn't disappear. You have to reckon with it. You have to deal with the fact that somebody died was placed in the ground for three days and stood up again and walked out. You can't just say, don't talk about it. It's a historical event. This morning, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time trying to defend the historicity of the resurrection. I'm just going to assume it and show you how the the followers, those who were the closest to Jesus' resurrection, how they handled it. It was the prime, motivating, apologetic of uh, of the book of Acts. And apologetic, I don't mean saying, oh, I'm sorry. The apologetic is, this is why we're doing what we're doing. This is what we believe. So we'll just look through the book of Acts and watch how this folds out. So the religious authorities were opposed to this, this new sect that's growing up. And they're opposed to this idea that Jesus is risen from the dead. Well, at the time, there was a young man who was one of the religious authorities, an up-and-coming guy. He was, he was doing pretty well. He was excelling, excelling above all his peers. His name was Saul, and he lived in the town of Tarsus. Well, Saul was really opposed to this new religious sect because it would updo, undo everything he believed about religion, about God, if this is true. And so he began to persecute the church. As a matter of fact, the first Christian martyr, his name was Stephen, when the crowd gathered to throw stones at Stephen and kill him, it was Saul who stood there and held the, the, uh, their, their garments, it held onto their goods and said, this is a good thing to do. So he's one of those religious authorities and he's opposed to this resurrected Christ. He goes to the chief priest with the authority. He gets letters of authority to say I'm going to throw anybody in jail who's preaching or who believes this stuff. That's how zealous he was. That's how angry he was at the idea of a resurrection. And so he trots off to Damascus. Heads north out of Israel towards Damascus. And on the road he met somebody he wasn't expecting. He was thrown to the ground by the power of this sudden appearance of the resurrected Christ. He had to face that. He had to deal with that. And so in his response to that, he is told to go into Damascus and to wait. And a man will come along and will, will tell him what must happen. And one of the things the man tells him is, this person, this, this Saul of Tarsus who opposed me, I have picked him to be the one who will suffer greatly for my name. But he will take my name before rulers, before authorities. He will take my name around the world. And that's exactly what Saul of Tarsus did. He began to become known as Paul because that was a more familiar name for the Gentiles around him. And so Paul goes on a missionary journey, and he travels around, and he tells people about this Jesus Christ and starts preaching to them. One of the places that he went uh, was in Turkey. So if you imagine Turkey is a peninsula that kind of sticks out. There's a stripe right down the middle. That region was called Galatia. Um, Galatia wasn't a a city. It was a, a region. And so a lot of Paul's first missionary journey, he went through towns in Galatia, and he began to preach there. And here's the message that he preached. Here's an example of what he preached when he was in Galatia. Except I put my sticker over top of it. Sorry about that. Um, after he's, he goes, what his, his method of preaching was, he would go into a synagogue that was a Jewish assembly in these cities and then ruin a perfectly good synagogue by telling him about the Jesus Christ. Everything that you've been reading in this synagogue, I'm here to tell you what it is. It's pointing to Jesus Christ. So here's the end of one of his sermons in Galatia. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those who fear God, so he's saying Jews and Gentiles, family of, family of Abraham and those who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, because they didn't understand the scriptures that they'd been given, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this has been fulfilled to us, to us their children, by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, though this man for, uh, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. So this was Paul's message to the churches of Galatia. This Jesus has been promised through all the scriptures. That's where all the scriptures were pointing was to this particular person. It promised that this Jesus would die And would not see corruption. What that means is his body wouldn't decompose. David, yeah, we know where his tomb is. And guess what? He's not sitting there waiting to be let out. He has decomposed. This Christ who I'm preaching to you, Paul said to the Galatians, he was raised from the dead. And then by the way of saying that, he tells them, look, you guys, you can travel to Jerusalem now and talk to people who have seen him. This is not a cleverly told story that I'm making up for you. This is a historical reality, and you can go verify it if you want. He appeared to his followers. Go check it out. And then he tells them, look, there is, no, there is salvation available nowhere else but through this Jesus Christ. That's the message of the resurrection is Christ has been risen. He's bringing you salvation, and now's the time to believe. So this is his consistent message to the Galatians. And do you notice where he ends? He says, because of this resurrection, you have been given what the law could never give you. As you tried to keep Moses' law, it could never deliver you from those, those burdens, from the weight of your sin. All it could do was pile on and pile on and pile on. But this Jesus has come and he's fulfilled all of that. And so there's salvation only in him. That was Paul's heartbeat. That was what his... his um, his effective message was for the Galatians. Well, after Paul did his missionary journey, he traveled around. He went back to, to um, Antioch. And after he returned, some people showed up in Galatia. And you know what they told people? They said, hey, this Jesus guy, that's great. You, he's, a, he's where you really need to start. But now that you've got Christ to really be saved, you have to become Jewish. And so you you got to be circumcised. And then once you're circumcised, then you're in. And then you can do things like obey the food laws and, and these other things. And that's really how you're saved. That, that's what the, the message is. Well, Paul was not real crazy about this. This was not a message that he wanted the, the churches in Galatia to hear. Because what it was doing is it was saying, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. He's a good start. But after that, now you're freed, you brought into the family, now you can really be saved by being circumcised, by obeying these laws, by fasting and feasting on these certain days, and that's when you're really saved. Paul had just absolutely no tolerance for that, zero tolerance for it. And so he writes to the churches of Galatia, and his letter to the Galatians is, it starts out really interesting because it starts with his formulaic approach and then it suddenly blasts in. <laughs> he gets through the niceties really quick, and then he gets right to the message. So let me read for you what he had to say. This is, this is the start of his letter. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, the God, um, Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sounds good so far, right? I am astonished that you so quickly are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that some are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again: If anyone is preaching to you to a gospel contrary to the one we've received, let him be accursed. Do you get the feeling Paul might be a little angry about this? You don't tamper with the gospel, the good news the glad tidings that God has saved you in Jesus Christ. And we, we use the word a curse there, and it's, it's not a bad translation. The word behind it is anathema. We kinda use that sometimes in English to say something that's really loathsome and something we really hate. Um, sorry, that's too weak. The way anathema is used primarily in Paul but throughout the scriptures is something that's set aside, something that's put to the side and prepared for destruction. The way it was used in the Old Testament is when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, there were some cities where they were told, you take nothing out of it. You dedicate it to destruction. You dedicate it to anathema. And once you have dedicated it to anathema, you take nothing out, you burn it all. So what, G- what, what Paul is saying here is if we show up If I, Paul, and my cohort show up in Galatia and we tell you, yeah, go ahead and be circumcised and start following the dietary laws, go to hell. I will go to hell if I do that. He says to these spiritual authorities, if an angel shows up in your church and says, I have good news for you, God loves you so much, he wants you to know all you have to do is be circumcised and follow the dietary laws, Paul says that angel can go to hell. He is not fooling around. This is is big news. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death and hell. He has fulfilled all the law of Moses. If anybody comes to you and adds anything to it, they're condemned. It's not about what you do. It's about who you trust, who did it for you. Paul is not real happy with that. Do you see, he stands in the face of spiritual powers, these angels, and he says, even you can't deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even the angels in heaven cannot deny the power, the effect, the outcome of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If an angel does that, the angel is condemned. So any spiritual power that might be arrayed against this gospel, against this good news of the resurrection, it is not going to stand. The resurrection puts it on end. It can't be. It can't stand in the light of that. So this is Paul's message to the Galatians. It was his constant theme. Also, though, he wrote to a church a little while later, uh, the church in a town called Colossi. Colossi was a little bit farther west than the Galatian region, and in Colossi, he never met these folks. He he had never gone to that church, but he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to strengthen their their view. Um, At the time that he wrote, there's really no good way for us to measure how many Christians there were in the world. Um, They didn't do censuses back there and say, what religion are you? Um, Christianity was probably still seen at this time as a sect of Judaism, so it wasn't really standing out as distinct. Um, Just taking a wild guess, just taking a stab by looking at um, some of the numbers as you go through the book of Acts. I, I came up with a guess. Let's say there was maybe 50,000 Christians at the time. That's just looking at the book of Acts, but the book of Acts doesn't record everything. There were other apostles going to different regions, so let's double that. Just, just for good measure, say 100,000. 100,000 Christians with this brand-new message of this Galilean carpenter who was raised from the dead. 100,000 people. That sounds like a pretty... If we had 100,000 people in our church, I'd be pretty happy. That'd be really busy. <laughs> but be, That'd be pretty neat. The Roman Empire by the end of the first century was about 33 million. 100,000 is less than one percent. This is really a minority opinion within broad culture. So the prevailing culture would look at them and say you guys are nuts. People don't rise from the dead. Um, you're worshiping, you're either an atheist because you don't worship the emperor or you're this weird Jewish sect. Well the Jews would look at them and go You're saying that people are saved by Jesus and not by following the law? You're not a Jew. you got a bunch of Gentiles you're eating with. You're messing up Judaism really bad. So nobody liked them. (laughs) That was what it meant to be a Christian in the first century is a tiny minority that nobody liked. And so what Paul writes to the the church in Colossae to encourage them, even though, like I said, he's never met them, but he, he knows what they need. They need to know their Savior well. Listen to what he tells them. This is in the middle of some other thoughts, but he really begins to zoom in. This is uh, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, he says of Jesus, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus, in whom we have for redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This Galilean carpenter, this guy who had a three-year itinerant preaching ministry, who was captured by the Romans, nailed to a cross, the most shameful death possible, thrown in the ground, and now some guys are running around saying he's alive again, He just said that he's the the image of the invisible God. The Jewish God who you can't see, who you can't build a picture of. This Jesus, this carpenter, is the image of him. What a huge claim. He says that for him were all things were created. By him, all things were created through him. And what does he mean by all things? Whether they're visible or invisible. The tangible, physical world we live in the invisible spiritual world, all of it was created by him and through him and for him, whether powers or dominions or rulers or authorities. And he's talking there about Caesar sitting on the throne. That Caesar was created by Jesus Christ. He's talking about angelic authorities that you can't see. They were created by Jesus and for Jesus. What a huge claim he makes. And then he keeps going. He says and he is before all things and in him all things hold together he is before all things he stands in front of all things he stands before all things and in all things hold together in him why is it that the, the nucleus of an atom stays together because Jesus wants it to why is it that electrons and, and protons and, and neutrons circle around that that, that central little tiny Uh, core of the atom? Because Jesus wants them to. Why do those atoms begin to clump together and form substances? Because Jesus said they should. Why do those substances gather together and begin to form complex cells? Because it was Jesus' idea. Why do those cells form human bodies? Because Jesus said that's the best way to do it. Everything was created through him and for him and he holds all things together by the exertion of his will. So as Jesus is born, he's in a manger as a little tiny baby, crying, unable to control his bowels. He will starve to death if his mother doesn't feed him. By the sheer exertion of his will, the universe stays together. He's nailed to a cross. He's bleeding out. He is crying in pain. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gives up the spirit and says, it is finished, and dies. And by the exertion of his will, the cross stays intact. This is a pretty big claim for, this, for Paul to be making in his time. But he's not done yet. He says, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he's the head of the body. He's the head of the church. The head means the, the source, the authority, the power of the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, there were other resurrections before Jesus. Jesus himself did a couple. He was going into a town and a woman was bringing her son out on a litter to, to bury him. And he stopped and raised the man from the dead. He broke up every funeral he ever attended. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. So those had happened before. But Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. You know why? All three of those people died again. They're not walking around today. They've all passed away. Jesus has been risen from the dead. He will never die again. He will not undergo corruption. So in that sense, he is the firstborn from the dead. We're going to follow in his trail. What the, the path that he's blazed in his resurrection, we're going to stand in and we're going to join with him. So he's the firstborn from the dead. Here's the part where Paul really goes overboard. I mean, I think he, I think he lost it at this point. He says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In him the fullness was pleased to dwell. The word is pleroma, and it had significant religious uh, expression in the day. What it meant was the fullness of divinity. It was used in in very heretical ways. Paul redeems the word and uses it here to say the fullness of God. All that God was, was dwelling in this, this Jewish carpenter. If you wanted to see what God was like, you look to Jesus, because the fullness dwelled in him. And when when God put the fullness in Jesus Christ, when Jesus became flesh, he took on a, a human nature. He did it so that he could, by the blood of his cross, reconcile all things to God. That was why he was born. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he raised from the dead was so that he could redeem all things, he could bring all things together in in a right relationship to God. And less than 1% of the population believed this. And he's making these huge claims about who Jesus was. This man is more than you could possibly imagine. And the prevailing culture said, you're nuts. Nobody believes that. Can, Can you tell me somebody else who believes that? Nobody believes that stuff. Why would you believe that? So in the face of a prevailing culture that increasingly in our day doesn't believe what we're called to do is stand and point to the cross of Jesus Christ and say he's risen from the dead. It's a historical fact. He was dead, he is not dead anymore. This recently they went there were some problems at the the tomb of the or the, the church of the the sepulcher of christ or something like that in jerusalem there's this place that they say was jesus grave and they were worried because the structures were failing i was like it's okay nobody's in there (laughs) it's empty (laughs) um don't worry about it probably wasn't the right place anyway because it's inside the city instead of out but that's not the point jesus is raised from the dead we point to an empty tomb and so even as our culture begins to look at us and go this is utter nonsense people How on earth can you believe that? People don't rise from the dead. And our response is, yes, exactly. But he did. And you can. Even though the culture is, is saying that that's wrong. Even though they're telling us that's nuts. So, as, as we walk in this day and we kind of feel that pressure, because I mean, this is just the, the water we swim in, this is the, the air we breathe, is a culture that repeatedly tells us these things don't happen. It repeatedly lives a life as if God doesn't exist. The temptation is, and let's be honest, there are temptations that we face where we go, I, maybe I don't believe. What if this isn't true? One of the things you can do, there are a number of things you can do to war against that kind of unbelief, turn that kind of unbelief to an unbelief of faith or a doubt of faith. One of them you can do is go, what about the resurrection? I have to deal with the resurrection. The religious leaders of Paul's day, of Peter's day had to deal with the resurrection. They had to have some answer for that. When Paul preached the gospel, he went forward and he told people about the resurrection. They had to have an answer for it in order to assure the Colossians that, that even though they were a small, tiny little town in a backwoods kind of community, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, that was what they were supposed to be holding on to. So as we're having those doubts, as those doubts might creep up once in a while, that's one place you can go is, is what am I gonna say about the, the resurrection? It's a historical event. It happened. I have to do something with it. So let that be an anchor for your soul. This is the audacity of the resurrection. It stands in the face of common sense. Have you ever seen anybody raised from the dead? No, you have not. Then why on earth would you believe Jesus did? Because he is audacious. Because he is the kind of person that would do that. Because in in him, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell so that he could reconcile all things to himself. In the face of that, it's an audacious claim. It opposes religious authorities, and lets us just ignore them. These different religious systems in, in, in America, Buddhism can say that, no, they don't, the resurrection didn't happen. Islam specifically and creedily denies the resurrection. Atheism, materialistic atheism, says it's not possible. And we can look at those people and say, deal with it. You have to deal with this. Opposing religious authorities can be ignored. We don't have to listen to what they say. And contradicting angelic powers could come and say that there's something else, and they are to be threatened with the gates of hell. A a preacher who comes to you and says, well, yeah, you know, Jesus is good, but he's a start, and here's what you got to do next. You can look at such a preacher and say, you can be damned. And you don't have to obey them. Instead, you can confront them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, as our culture does that to us and presents to us this worldview through TV and through advertisements and through songs and through media constantly bombarding us with, there is a life that doesn't include God. We can look at that, that prevalent culture and confront them with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to do something with that. You have to answer that somehow. So as we celebrate Easter, and by the way, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday. That's why we gather on Sunday instead of Saturday, is because Jesus rose. Today is that day where we specially focus on it. And the good news is that that resurrection confronts all of our foes, all of our enemies. It is an answer to every accusation against the church, is Jesus rose from the dead. You Christians, you think you're so much better than everybody else, absolutely not. I don't think I'm better than anybody, but I know somebody who is. And that's where I'm putting my hope and my trust. So, this Easter, let that fill you with faith. Let that fill you with a hope for the future. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Our resurrection will look like his resurrection, it will be a physical body who stands on the earth. We will see corruption and then we'll be knit back together in a wonderful way. There is hope for the future. Whether religious authorities, whether angelic powers, whether prevailing culture agrees or not, it's the truth. Let's pray. Jesus, your resurrection upends everything. It turns the tea cart over. It sets everything on end. And that's, I think, the reason that our culture seems to want to attack it every Easter. Try to find a grave with a body. And, Lord, we know that it's not possible, that it won't be there. If there is a grave with a body, it won't be yours. So, Lord, thank you for being so audacious as to rise from the dead and to equip your church with this important message, that Jesus died for your sins and was raised. Lord, I pray for all of us that that when doubts arise, when conflicting ideas begin to bubble up, Lord, would you help us to, to... reach for that touchstone of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of the future resurrection that we will join him in. Be glorified this Easter in all of your churches, all the way around the world, especially in Egypt where trucks are blowing up in church buildings, in Syria where Christians are being persecuted and and executed, in Iran where the church is almost totally chased out. Lord, would you strengthen the believers there and through the blood of the martyrs bring to to, um, fruition, bring to full growth the church of Jesus Christ in these dark places too. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.